welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Tim Springer. Tim wears many hats. First and foremost, he's a scientist, an immunologist to be specific, at Harvard Medical School. He's best known for his discovery of integrins, a class of transmembrane receptors. Now in his 70s, Tim recently won the Gairdner Award, sometimes called the Canadian Nobel. The prize committee cited Tim for his, quote, discovery of the first immune system adhesion molecules, elucidation of their roles in antigen recognition and leukocyte homing, and translation of these discoveries into therapeutics for autoimmune diseases. Scient- end quote. Scientists out there, are you thinking the same thing I'm thinking? That's big. <laughs> Integrins have long tantalized drug developers, ever since some of these properties became better understood. Biogen's natalizumab, marketed as Tysabri, is one very effective drug for multiple sclerosis aimed at an integrin target. Takeda's vetalizumab, marketed as Antivio, is another integrin-directed antibody that took many years to blossom, but is now a billion-dollar blockbuster for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. But Tim is more than a trailblazing scientist. He's also an entrepreneur. He made a fortune in the 1990s from his founder's shares in Leukocyte, a company acquired by Millennium Pharmaceuticals. More recently, he's co-founded a pair of Boston-area startups that have gone public, Scholar Rock and Morphic Therapeutic. Almost as an afterthought, he even made a shrewd early investment in Moderna, the messenger RNA therapy company. Lastly, Tim founded a nonprofit venture, the Institute for Protein Innovation. He hopes this open biology entity will advance the field of protein science, which often lags behind the world of nucleic acid biology, DNA and RNA, in terms of fame and funding. Tim's also a rock collector. If you listen toward the end, he explains. Tim really doesn't go out and seek a lot of attention for himself, so I'm really happy he agreed to sit down and share his story with me. Now before we start the episode, a couple quick things. Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development program advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small to mid-sized pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and the right cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatment to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech, visit www.ppdbiotech.com. And are you a marquee service provider eager to get your name out in front of the biotech leaders who listen to this show? Ask my new business representative, Stephanie Barnes, about sponsorship opportunities. You can reach out to her by looking at the contact page on TimmermanReport.com. The other thing you can do to support quality journalism is to purchase a subscription to Timmerman Report. It's $149 a year for an individual subscriber. Companies and universities with multiple readers can purchase a group sharing license. You'll get two to three in-depth articles per week without being subjected to any advertising. 
Specifically, you'll be able to glean insights from the talented crew of contributing writers who I edit and publish. They are Stacy Lawrence, Asher Mullard, Alex Harding, and Leora Schiff. And oh, by the way, I just added another outstanding contributor to the team, David Shaywitz, formerly of Forbes. Watch out for his new Astounding Health Tech column on Timmerman Report. Go to timmermanreport.com slash subscribe to get yours today. Now, please join me and Tim Springer on the long run. Tim Springer, welcome to the long run. Thanks. Well, Tim, uh, I'm really excited to have you on the show today as you are a man of many hats, uh, a scientist first and foremost, but also an entrepreneur, an investor, I guess you could say science philanthropist with this Institute for Protein Innovation, which yes. I want to ask you about later. Um, and also, like, you know, you're an uh, exotic rock collector. Maybe I'll even <laughs> see, sneak in a question about that. Um, but for our listeners who, who may not be super familiar, uh, Tim, you, you just uh, received the Gardner Award, which is the, uh, the Canadian Nobel, so to speak. So congratulations. Thank you. You know, as I thought about your career and what makes you an interesting person on this show, you've had one of these scientific careers that's a little bit unusual. So I guess, you know, there are a lot of people who make a big discovery in their 20s or 30s, and they get known for one big thing. And maybe that they can kind of rest on their laurels the rest of their career, or they're always known for that. Yours is one of those careers where uh, some of your early work has really accumulated and become it's become more apparent about its value to uh, biology and pharmaceuticals in particular later on. So um, the one example uh, that I want to mention to the listeners is the uh, vetalizumab, the alpha-4 beta-7 antibody, uh, which was uh, you worked on back at Leukocyte in the 1990s. Uh, it only won FDA approval like 15 years after the sale of leukocyte in the hands of Takeda Pharmaceuticals, long after you had let it go. But even now this year, I mean, this is now a multi-billion dollar product for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. It just ran a head-to-head study uh, against, um, uh, Takeda did, against AbbVie's Humira, and uh, it, it proved superior. So now this is a, a truly a multi-billion dollar product, the alpha-4, beta-7, uh, integrin inhibitor. This goes all the way back to your earliest research into the discovery of integrins. So uh, a very important drug, and it's certainly not the, the one and only. So um, really interesting stuff. Um, and I want to like kind of rewind a little bit and, and bring our listeners along to how we got there. So... Um, Tim, can you just kind of start us off, uh, as I often do with this show, uh, where were you born and raised? How did you get started on this path in science? Um, I was born in Fort Benning, Georgia, when my dad was briefly down there, um, uh, you know, for Army Reserve training, and uh, four years in Michigan, rest of my life in California, just grew up in Sacramento. California boy. And you went to public schools, is that right? Correct. Uh, how about your family, brothers and sisters? I have four sisters and one brother. Um, I happen to be the oldest. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. So were you the typical oldest uh, sibling, the responsible one, <laughs> getting good grades, working hard? <laughs> uh, maybe I, I think I felt most under the gun. Um, you know, my parents did, um, you know, incentivize us or they expected us. Not, not that we got too many incentives, but they just expected us to be smart. Um, that's what they said. I said, the, the spring, springers have to be smart. Now, I think there's no, we had no monopoly on that whatsoever, but just the expectation of it um, seemed to, to help. <laughs> uh-huh. Now, your dad was a physician, is that right? Yes, yes. What, what kind of medicine? The reason I went to California is he went there to intern, um, and he already had uh, three children uh, and a wife to take care of uh, when he uh, was finishing an internship and another one was going to be on the way soon. And um, my, uh, my mom said, look, Buck, um, you know, you, you have to earn some money now. You know, we can't afford any further training. Um, so he became a family physician, but um, he also, back in those days when you could do this, um, also did general surgery and OBGYN. And he retired um, um, before he reached 65. And, um, uh, but he also, you know, continued um, in the National Guard and he wanted to make colonels. So um, he uh, became the commanding officer at a National Guard evacuation hospital in San Francisco. And, you know, was very, very proud to retire a bird colonel. So he's a military man, a physician as well. There sounds like a, a strong culture of service to others. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You're the oldest son. Uh, you're baby boom generation. I think you say born 1948. Um, so like a lot of people, you go off to college in the 60s. Um, you went to Yale straight away, right? Right. Now, tell me about that experience that first year. I had been um, a, um, you know, a straight-A student in high school, um, and um, I um, had never visited, uh, you know, um, Connecticut or Massachusetts. Um, I'd visited my dad, dad's farm where, he, where he'd grown up in Pennsylvania when I was a young kid. That was it. Um, and uh, so the East Coast was a surprise, and, um, you know, and I was uh, at an all-male school for the first time in my life. Um, actually, it was the last year the Yale um, uh, was an all-male school. And, uh, um, <clears throat> uh, and you know, I was with all these very well-prepared um, prep school kids. Uh, and, um, and I'd signed up for this um, very intensive uh, program. I had the idea that I didn't want to do science, although I knew I was good at it, but um, I wanted to study the humanities because, um, you know, my disillusionment uh, where uh, technocrats had gotten us, um, you know, like into the war. This has been middle 1960s, right? As yeah, Vietnam this is 19, was just ramping yeah, up. Yeah, it was at Yale 1966 to 67, you know, uh -huh. really the height of the Vietnam War. You know, a lot of my high school classmates were going over there and, you know, an, a, a good number didn't come back. And um, uh, I was certainly wondering what this was all about. You became somewhat dis disillusioned with science, that, that scientists had, you know, made some horrible things possible, like napalm 
and yeah. Agent Orange, right? Exactly, exactly. And so you began to wonder, like, well, what's my purpose? What do I want to do with my life? This classic undergraduate question, right? Yeah, and that's right, right, right. It happened to be the, my, the, my biggest uh, rebellious year. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, so I wound up um, not studying well. Um, I hitchhiked across the U.S. during uh, one of one of the breaks, um, and um, find myself in Haight Ashbury, which was happening then, just over a break. And I had a girlfriend, you know, from there come visit me at Yale, um, and uh, so uh, and also I got infectious mononucleosis, and that really landed me um, in bed for like three. weeks. Um, at the student infirmary. Um, as a result, um, I didn't do that well. Um, and um, um, I also got in trouble with the dean because um, they suspected that I was uh, smoking marijuana, which was true. <laughs> <laughs> and I got hauled to the dean's office for that. Um, and um, uh, so anyhow, during that year, uh, some recruiters from Vista um, came on campus, and you know this was the Volunteers and Surface to America that was um, uh, Lyndon Johnson's continuation of what JFK had started with the Peace Corps, but it was just for one year. And so I signed up, you know, for that. Well, I applied to it. I didn't know if I'd gotten in yet, but I applied now, to it. Vista is sort of thought of in those years as a domestic Peace Corps. Yes, yes. And so you signed. You applied. Yeah, yeah, I applied. And where did you go with that? Well, um, so um, I, uh, I I went back to Sacramento, um, and I found out, yeah, that yes, I had been accepted, and um, they would have I could have gone back to Yale, but um, there was one course that um, I had just never studied for, which is ironic because it was um, uh, linear algebra. And um, it, I just never studied for it, and so I flunked it, of course. Um, and um, and it's ironically just what I really needed to be a successful, well, full full out structural biologist, um, you know, with matrix transformations. Um, probably, you know, not not too bad. At this point, you hadn't decided to become a structural biologist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a long time to come in the future, but. Um, I, um, um, I could have like taken one class um, at my junior college, you know, and then gone back to Yale for my sophomore year. But uh, the VISTA volunteer, um, um, ex you know, application uh, was accepted. And I was invited to go out to Colorado and go in training there with the uh, sociology department at the University of Colorado, um, training in Denver. Um, and so I accepted that. And you then went to an Indian reservation in Nevada for a year, right? Yes, yes. The Yamba Shoshone Reservation. That was a really great experience for a 19-year-old kid. Um, I was thrust into community development, which, you know, I knew almost nothing about, but gladly was doing. Um, I got to uh, uh, write tribal resolutions uh, for the tribal council that were sent off to senators. And um, actually, one of them resulted in um, a hearing, a Senate hearing, you know, where they <laughs> called in some Bureau of Indian officials to testify, which, 
you know, um, government agencies don't like to have happen to them. It's always pretty good incentive to straighten things out. Um, and we got a, uh, we worked through the county to get a, um, a food commodity distribution center set up on the tribe. Um, uh, the tribal chairman and I went to two county uh, highway hearings and um, explained to Governor Paul Exalt at the time that um, the um, kids um, who were going to a one-room schoolhouse for grades kindergarten through eight um, could not go to high school um, unless they lived away from home because there was an unpaved road over a mountain pass uh, that was impassable in winter uh, to get to the local high school. So um, the governor really perked up at that, particularly when other people were saying, oh, you know, if we had a paved road to here, I could get my ore out for one cent a ton cheaper. Whereas if you actually put a road in here, you can send kids to school. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that's going to that's going to propel them on a, a whole different life trajectory. Yeah. And it wouldn't co- it wouldn't cost that much money. Um, you could do it <laughs> uh, if there was the will and the, the determination. And so you worked on you worked on this sort of thing. And you know, for a year, that sounds pretty, pretty satisfying. Like, gosh, you know, uh, you can actually make a difference. Yeah. And it was a blast, too. I mean, the Indians assigned me a horse I had to buy my own saddle. That was, you know, my only means of transportation for a while. Um, I got to work with kids putting in a neighborhood, uh, well, in a neighborhood youth corps program I ran. And, you know, that was a blast. So it was it was really a wonderful experience, Luke. Okay, so you have this experience with Vista, but then how do you come back to science? Gradually. Uh, a lot of my buddies uh, were at the University of California. And so I got accepted to Berkeley. And... Um, uh, and, and then I thought, oh, okay, this was, I really had a great time on the reservation. You know, I really want to be a cultural anthropologist. So I took a course in anthropology. Um, you know, that, you know, and then I had to do some field work. I, you know, interviewed some people about their, you know, you know, th- that was an experience. And then said, no, that's not going to work. Maybe I'll do sociology, took a sociology class. No, not not quite. So, and then I took psychology, and I said, "Oh, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, become a major in physiological psychology, and sign up for that." And then um, I uh, I took physics, and um, I loved physics. Um, I took five. Uh, well, I took four physics courses for majors. The first one I took was a more general physics course, and then after that, I switched to the one for majors. I think the same thing happened to me with organic chemistry. Um, first org chemistry was sort of general one for um, pre-meds, um, and then I really loved it, and I took the regular one, you know, for chemistry majors, and I loved, I just loved those. Um, so then um, I decided, okay, I should switch my major to biochemistry, which luckily had very few uh, course requirements. Um, and so I, uh, I was assigned to biochemistry advisor, Daniel Koshland, you know, who was very famous um, then and later. And um, so I said, can I do this? He said, sure you can. Um, So, um, you know, and for biochemistry, you really only needed to take, um, you know, a a year-long course for majors. um, And I did that my senior year. 
and I took um, the laboratory course, which is a separate course, and it was also a great course. It's the best laboratory course I've ever had. Um, and so, you know, my course was set after that. This would have been right around 1970? Yeah, 70, 71, I graduated. Okay. And this advisor, he was already interested in conformational states of proteins right. and how they change. Now, now this is a, a through line throughout your career. You remain very interested in it today. Yes. What was it about that set of questions then that captivated you? Well, enzymes were regulated to turn off biochemical pathways, um, depending on how much of a substrate was available. Like if E. coli, you know, had galactose around, they would turn on uh, the lac operon to metabolize glucose, uh, galactose, um, lactose. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, that was beginning to be understood at the time and involved some fascinating um, allosteric changes um, in enzymes. Um, and there was also cooperativity uh, of hemoglobin that was known at the time. Um, and so uh, I thought that was really cool stuff. And, um, yeah, I wanted to work on that. So I went to graduate school and um, wound up going to, to Harvard. And who was the advisor there at Harvard? Jack Storminger. Ah, famous uh, individual, still around, I believe, right? And doing yes. science. Yes. He is 94 years old. He, um, he um, you know, still goes into the laboratory daily. Um, but um, Harvey said, at Harvard, you have the greatest faculty benefits. And one of them is a bus that can pick him up because, <laughs> you know, he can't drive a car anymore, you know, that can take him to where he needs to go. Okay, but so you you're coming back now. You're you're set it uh, set on science. Uh, this yep. is what you're going to do. You're going to Harvard, uh, Jack Strominger's lab. What was um, the the interesting question in front of you then? Was it was it really protein biochemistry at these very basic building block levels, or were you thinking about like downstream applications with immunology then? Both. So a lot of my colleagues there, uh, I mean, we have Jim Watson and Wally Gilbert there. A lot of my fellow graduate student colleagues were going into nucleic acid protein interactions. Um, but I was, uh, when I was still at Berkeley, I'd um, uh, purified some antibodies uh, as an undergraduate. Um, and Alan Wilson, who was down the hall, who was the first biochemist who was studying evolution through um, studying lysozymes from different um, birds um, and uh, determining uh, you know, how closely related birds were one to another through cross-reactivity of their lysozymes with uh, antibodies. Um, and so, you know, Alan Will, interesting guy, Alan Wilson, um, and um, so I, you know, I was sort of predisposed to be interested in immunology. And Jack Strominger had done a lot of work on penicillin and cell wall biosynthesis in bacteria. And he was just switching to working with cell surface proteins of mammalian cells um, in the immune system. So that was very interesting to me. 
Cell surface proteins. Not a lot was known about them. Or, or, or transmembrane receptors. You know, what are the components in the... Which parts are hydrophilic versus hydrophobic? Um, th there was a lot to, to ask and answer here. Yes, yes. It was a totally um, a new field just beginning to be broken open. And um, um, yeah, my uh, PhD work was on histocompatibility antigens, which um, are the barriers to transplantation um, and were very polymorphic, but nobody knew why. Um, but we intuited they must do something very important in the variable from one person to another. And um, in terms of what was known, um, you know, there was only one protein beforehand, glycophorin, um, that, you know, had been sequenced and shown to have, um, you know, a large bit outside the cell and then a short segment in the membrane and another short segment inside the cell. Um, and the, the molecule I worked on, HLA, was only the, the second such protein, you know, to have that sort of thing characterized. This is a pretty cool problem. I mean, because even then, uh, people would have, you know, there was this obvious problem with uh, organ transplant rejection, you yes. know, uh, and, uh, but working out the molecular biology down there at the major histocompatibility complex, the HLA antigens, what was different? What was causing some of that rejection, potentially? You, you had to work out a lot of basic biology to, to even begin to answer that. Yeah, we did. We did. Purifying the proteins um, from intact white blood cells was very challenging. Um, I had to learn about solubilizing proteins with detergents from colleagues who had been working on that in the lab on cell wall biosynthesis bacteria. Um, and um, uh, and it, it also taught me um, that... Um, these proteins were so difficult to purify, it would be good, you know, to have some other immunological technique uh, to use. Um, and um, while we were working there, there was um, an antibody uh, to um, one of the subunits of the HLA antigens called beta-2 microglobulin. And one of my colleagues started purifying that, using that to affinity purify the antigens. Um, and so that was, that was pretty striking to me. So you did this, this manual process to yeah. purify oh, these yeah. antibodies from, from cells. Um, it, but, and this is before um, Kohler and Milstein came That's up right. with monoclonals. That's right. Uh, right. Which became a very useful tool, obviously. Sure. Uh, you ended up going to work for Milstein, actually, for a while, right? Uh, I was very fortunate, yeah. Um, I, I was in England. Um, another project I was on didn't work out. And um, um, I, you know, started working with him. And I just had six more months there uh, before I had to come back to Harvard Medical School. But, but um, Cesar and, um, you know... Um, and, and Giovanni Goffrey, who was working with him, personally showed me how to uh, do uh, fusions to make monoclonal antibodies. Um, and I, you know, started characterizing them there and then took them back with me to the States to characterize them further. 
And um, I was really the first one. I was lucky. I was one of the first people to learn how to do this. From, yeah, from you're Cesar. learning one of the most powerful techniques uh, in biology even today. Yes, yes. So, so how, you ended up coming back to Harvard. Was, was this right away for a faculty gig? Like, were you on the fast track at this point? Um, yes, because I was already hired by Baruch Benasraf, the chairman of the pathology department, to start at um, the medical school while I was a PhD student. Uh, he wanted me to come immediately after my PhD, but I said... I'm sorry, you know, I've already signed to a postdoc and, you know, I really, really want to do this. So reluctantly, he, you know, um, let me do that before I started with him. (laughs) Usually that's not how it goes. Like, you know, somebody offers you a faculty gig, you say, when when can I start? (laughs) Um, Okay, So, so you came back to Harvard Medical School on the faculty. What year was this? 1977. Okay, so you would have been just shy of 30. Um, and, um, okay. So you're, um, and 1977, you know, biology historians, there's so much going on here. Monoclonal antibodies have just been discovered. Uh, we're, we're beginning to get uh, the, the manual DNA sequencing, uh, you know, as you say, said earlier, the, the nucleic acids and protein inter- uh, connections. Um, so there, you've got a lot of tools to work with. And um, now like you're, you're beginning to focus in on immunology um, or, or was it more basic still than that? Like your, was this where your integrin work began? Yes, but actually they both started at the same time. So okay. um, there was the great thing about being at Harvard Medical School was that there were people who knew a lot about um, cellular phenomena that um, I wasn't exposed to um, in the biochemistry department. Um, And I could apply my techniques to um, cellular problems. And at that time, antibodies, uh, which were produced by B cells, were very well understood. But um, almost nothing was known about how T lymphocytes recognize foreign antigen which required um, a direct contact between the cell and the target cell. And you could see that direct contact um, under the microscope. And um, the process had been staged. So you could allow the T cells to adhere to the target cells. And then you, um, and you, and then you could suspend those cells, um, so no further contacts could occur. And then you could wait to see whether the target cells got lysed. And they, they did. Um, and there were no molecules that were um, certainly known to participate in those processes. The only thing that was known was that the adhesion step, the conjugate, was... Uh, was it required magnesium and the lethal head required calcium and these conjugates were you know visualized under the, the light or the electron microscope and they were really beautiful the t cells seemed to form this suction cup like um attachment to the t cell um and between them between the two cells is what would now be called an immunological synapse 
Um, but that, you know, that name was far off in the future. Um, and actually, the molecule that I discovered next, LFA1, was later shown to be like right at the forming the rims around the suction cup and really tightening the contact. Um, and so what I did was um, I collaborated with Eric Martz, who had this killer T-cell assay well underhand. And, um, you know, and I got T-cells from uh, mice um, or rats and, um, and then isolated um, antibodies. But instead of just looking for any old antibody that would react with any old uh, protein on the cell's surface, like I had done with Cesar, I focused the assay in to only um, choose antibodies that would, would block um, the killing step. So antibodies that recognize proteins that were required for the functional outcome. And I identified one um, called LFA1, first in the mouse. And then a little later, um, I did a similar experiment with human uh, T cells and identified three different molecules, uh, one of LFA1, LFA2, and LFA3. Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development program advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small to mid-sized pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and the right cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatment to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech, visit www.ppdbiotech.com. Another way to support quality independent reporting on biotech is to support the Timmerman Report. You can get an individual subscription or a company license that comes with sharing rights. Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit the green button that says subscribe. This is interesting. I mean, you're getting lots of publications. Uh, I guess now we're talking the 1980s. Um, you, you've got this nice academic career going. I want to fast forward a bit. Um, you eventually become, in the early 90s, an entrepreneur, um, starting a company called Leukocyte. What, was, uh, what were you trying to accomplish there? Well, I'd moved on and we'd discovered the integrins, um, you know, that LFA1 and MAC1 were founding members of. Um, and we'd um, discovered some ligands for LFA1 called ICAM. And, uh, and then we discovered that the, um, the LFA1 and the MAC1 were missing uh, in an inherited disease. And um, the patients had plenty of white blood cells in their circulation, but they couldn't leave the bloodstream to form pus. Um, and then we discovered that there were um, three, molecule, three molecular steps. There was um, a weak adhesion um, step. And these are the steps that leukocytes are required to use in the bloodstream into a site of inflammation. Um, and we, so we found one set of molecules in the first step, a different set of molecules in the second step, and a third set of molecules in step three all of which were required for this process to be completed. Um, and 
um, it was like we had the area code, you know, a series of three digits um, that were required. And, um, and then I realized, wow, we could block the area code for the skin without interfering with the area code to the gut. Or we and you know and we could block the area code for one kind of white blood cell like neutrophils without blocking the area code for another kind the lymphocytes. So we we could come up with much more effective um, and more selective um, treatments for autoimmune diseases. And this area is too broad for uh, my laboratory to really be competitive in. And um, it's a whole new area for more biological discovery as well as drug development. The only way that we can make progress on this is if I start a company. And so that's when I started Leukocyte. Okay, so this is, this is kind of a crossroads, I guess, for just about every basic biologist. You can always move from one basic question to another, get your publications, and, and stay in your lane. Mm-hmm. But here you decided, you know, actually there, there are all these applied questions, which are actually interesting <laughs> to me as well, and, and potentially impactful uh, down the road. So how do you go about like mustering the resources, the, the money and the people to start Leukocyte? Well, I didn't know many people at all. I mean, I'd had some exposure to the farm industry through research support for my laboratory. So I just started calling up uh, venture capitalists. Um, and then finally, uh, a friend of mine, Bill Hazeltine, you know, was a scientific advisor to um, healthcare ventures. And so, you know, I just, you know, called on him and showed him my business plan. Um, and he said it seemed really cool and he presented it to them. Um, and now, Bill Hazeltine in those days was he was a Harvard professor, yes. later became CEO of Human Genome yes. Sciences, one of the big, you know, go go genomics yes. companies. Yes. They liked what I was doing, um, thought I was a really crazy scientist, and they wanted to fund the company. Um, and I, I did manage to negotiate a good um, you know, share of stock as a founder um, and um, hired some you know, great people like Chris Mirabelli uh, as a C- CEO, and we got off to a very quick start. Okay, so this is 1993, yes. I think you yes. got started. Um, and then this is when you started working uh, on applying some of this work that I alluded to at the very beginning of the show, right? right? The alpha-4, beta-7 antibody, votalezomib, right. uh, Antivio is what it's marketed as. This was one of your programs. Yes, yes. Um, and I, that was, you know, it was very similar to um, uh, LFA-1 uh, in the sense that um, it was another integrin and it bound to an Ig superfamily ligon and endothelium, just like LFA1. And I like discovered the paradigm for this, but not that particular example. Um, and so Leukocyte licensed um, the antibody actually from some other colleagues that I'd collaborated with in the past at the Mass General Hospital and started working on it very early on. We started the company in 1993. And in 1995, we published um, one of our first papers showing that this antibody would uh, block ulcerative colitis uh, in a uh, cotton top marmoset model system at the New England uh, Primate Center. Yeah, and a lot of people probably uh, at, the, at the time didn't uh, kind of shrug. Well, no, they didn't exactly shrug. I mean, they thought it was pretty cool. I think the problem, the, the reason it took so, so long was maybe some mistakes made along the way, both scientifically uh, and um, 
business-wise in terms of the development of, of this uh, drug at a company. Well, okay, so, uh, you know, the short history that a Lucas site, I mean, this is the 1990s, it's the, there's a boom time going on in biotech, ended up acquiring Proscript, yeah. uh, which was the company that had Bortezomib, yes. later known as Velcade. Yes. So now Lucas site takes on uh, a whole different profile in the later 90s with this first of its kind, proteasome inhibitor, uh, ends up getting acquired by Millennium. Um, and Millennium was, you know, the big go-go genomics company on the East Coast doing all this functional genomics. Like, we've got the code now on our desktop. We're going to understand what all these genes and their proteins do. And it, it's going to lead us to the promised land of, of drugs. Targeted drug discovery and development didn't really pan out. But they did have one gem of an asset that became apparent quite early with Velcade, um for multiple myeloma. Um, now this was important to you. So <laughs> how does Tim Springer fit into this? I mean, you're the founder of Leukocyte and Leukocyte suddenly becomes very valuable, uh, to millennium. It gets acquired for 600 some million. And this makes you personally wealthy. Um, 1999, right? Yeah. Your founder's shares get cashed out and it's something like a hundred million dollars. Yeah, that's what, mm -hmm, that's what I get for them when I sell half of them. And I, okay. yeah. So this is, um, this is a big moment, right? right? I mean, you could decide to, you don't need to work anymore. You could do whatever you want. Um, how did this change the way you thought about, um, your science or your life? Well, I thought about it for a few months. What am I going to do? Um, and, um, and I thought, well, maybe I, I want to start another company, but I thought, no, I'm never going to do as well if I start another company. Um, what, do I, what do I like doing? Well, I decided I really like doing science. So um, I just kept um, at it in my lab, and um, I uh, learned some new techniques. I learned um, structural biology and started making determining crystal structures of proteins and studying conformational change, a centerpiece in my laboratory. Um, I um, did some rather interesting new things with single molecule biophysics. Um, well, let, let's back up here, Tim. Why, why the x-ray crystallography and, and the deeper study of conformational change? Why did that rise to the top of your priority list? Well, it's, as you know, it's what, what I was interested in ever since I was an undergraduate. Um, and also in um, 1989, Mike, Dustin, and I reported that um, LFA1 um, got activated by antigen receptor signaling. Um, and when LFA1 got activated to mediate adhesion, there was no increase in the number of LFA1 molecules per cell. So we thought that there might be a conformational change in LFA1 that explained the increase in adhesiveness. And I should point out that that also was um, the, um, the, the reason why LFA1 could function as a cell recognition molecule without negating antigen-specific recognition. Okay, now for those unfamiliar, when you say conformational change, that is like a different shape that the protein folds into. So you've got the same basic gene sequence, the amino acid, like it, it provides the code for that protein, but, but it, it, 
it folds into a different shape right. that's distinct and provides it presents all kinds of different it has different properties when it's in that different state there's different potential pockets that one might bind with that are presented when it's in that different shape so like if you don't have that kind of 3d uh, view of the protein not just from a snapshot that you might be able to take with your given technology but that maybe um, a series of views, like how that protein changes in a different conformational state. That's the information you really want. Yes, yes. And it was the key to understanding how they function. We've, we've now found that the affinity for the ligand increases 4,000-fold for one integrin and 700-fold for another integrin after that conformational change. It's like a completely different protein almost. Almost, yeah. But as you say, there's no change in its covalent structure. And the cool thing about that is it can be reversible too, you know, very rapidly reversible, which is one thing I'm working on now. Okay. So you went to work, these became uh, focus areas of your lab at Harvard. You're working on this throughout, um, I guess, the early, throughout the 2000s, the, the, the aughts. Um, and then, like in rapid succession, you get a few more ideas that are the genesis for companies. There's Scholar Rock, there's Morphic. Um, I guess, could you talk a little bit about each one um, and what, um, what, what made those uh, ideas worth sure. building a company around? Sure. So first of all, I got back into, um, uh, in, well, I got into investing to start with uh, through... Um, uh, putting up part of the B round for selective biosciences and then uh, meeting some friends on the board, um, uh, Amir Nishat, who um, I, I sort of uh, call my biotech muse because, um, you know, he, you know, we became friends and, you know, he simulated me a lot and asked me to uh, join uh, Polaris um, uh, as an advisor. And uh, at one of their offsite advisory meetings, I teamed up with uh, Katrine Bosley um, to, to lead a discussion. Um, and I came up with the idea for Scholar Rock, which involves um, trapping the conformation of um, growth factors like TGF beta uh, when they're inactive with antibodies. Um, and um, it sort of built off what I'd learned with integrins, um, but it was a new way of blocking um, TGF-beta activation, not with an antibody to the growth factor, but with an antibody that kept the growth factor bound and uh, inactive when it was bound to its protomine. So, um, so that was cool. Um, and actually, even before that, I'd helped start um, Editas Medicine and... Um, uh, Moderna. Um, and then um, I also, just in my laboratory... Moderna, that would have been 2010, 2011 time frame, right? Mm -hmm. uh, D Derek Rossi at Harvard Stem Cell Institute was looking for some yes. help. In, in, uh, and, and, and you liked the science, you had some money to invest, and you made a, a rather um, early and, and, in retrospect, cagey investment <laughs> on that one. Now market value, whatever, five, six billion dollars. But, okay, so... There's Moderna, there's Selecta, 
Uh, there's Scholar Rock. Maybe the, very briefly here, like the Scholar Rock. This is kind of an unusual name for a company, and it's inspired <laughs> by your, your your interest in these exotic rocks. Could you just say a little briefly what the inspiration is there? It's a Chinese aesthetic tradition that dates to the Tang Dynasty, about 500 A.D., um, in which natural objects from nature are collected, and um, they should have bizarre shapes. Uh, they should be hollowed out by natural forces like um, water um, um, or, or wind um, and, you know, come in unusual shapes. Um, and uh, it was just at a point when Chinese uh, painting was being transformed from figurative painting, like we have uh, in the West of the human body, to um, emphasize brushstrokes. Um, so uh, basically, it's it's a it's Chinese got to abstract art way before the West did, and um, this is sort of another form of um, abstract art that really. Um, they love. And to um, a Western person, these look like sculptures, um, but they're actually formed by natural forces. And to me, they um, they reveal the inner strength of the rock. Um, and that's actually how we sort of came to the Scholar Rock name. Um, I had determined a crystal structure of TGF beta surrounded by its protomain, and there's a hole right through the middle of it, um, the structure. And um, I have a rock that um, has a hole worn by the water right through the middle of it. And these rocks are often from metamorphic um, rock, uh, which has been, you know, sedimentary to begin with and then heated up um, inside the earth um, and, and uh, metamorphized. And the, uh, the water wears away the, the weak rock and leaves um, the stronger, denser rock behind. And so it, it reveals the inner strength of the rock and um, it sort of, and they can sort of look like three dimensional structures of proteins. And you actually collect some of these rocks, I know. Yes. Uh, and yes. Uh, you know, if you ever uh, go to the Cape or you know out by me to like the Oregon or Washington coast, and you can see the forces of nature and how they act on these rocks, uh, you know, it's um, it, yeah, it, it does make your imagination wander a bit. Uh, the, Perhaps about you know what happens down deep down at our molecular levels um, with molecules. So, okay, Scholar Rock, it's born and uh, with some ideas on how to um, interact with TGF beta um, in a way that might be therapeutically relevant. Companies now publicly traded. The other one, Morphic, came a little bit later. Now, what was yes. it about uh, that idea that that made that one worth spinning out another company? Inhibitors uh, to integrins had been around a long time, and they were used transiently during treatment. But when, when companies started developing them as oral antagonists to be um, chronic treatments, they failed. And in fact, they made patients worse. They gave them more heart attacks rather than fewer. Okay, so integrin inhibitors. So back to integrins. I mean, you're yeah. the guy who discovered these transmembrane <laughs> receptors in the first place. One of the best known integrin inhibitors is the uh, antibody from Biogen, uh, natalizumab tysabri, mm -hmm. for multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. It's an yes. antibody that binds to a target specifically expressed on the surface 
of cells. Very effective for MS. Um, for uh, It also has that severe side effect, PML, which we've had to figure out how to manage later on. But what you're talking about is small molecule drug discovery. People have wondered, can we make small molecules that bind with integrins? Uh, and that's been more challenging. Yes, yes. And the problem is that the small molecules, when they bind to the integrin, induce this high affinity active conformation. And it may be that when they dissociate, then they briefly leave the integrin in that configuration. Um, and that has um, untoward effects. Um, it, you know, so they, um, there's some evidence, even from clinical studies, that the small molecules can act as not pure antagonists, but as partial agonists. And oh. you can see that in the structure because, you know, when they bind to uh, the protein, they will induce the active conformation. We've, we've seen a lot of that in uh, papers we've published. Um, but um, a, um, some, some uh, postdoctoral fellows in my laboratory discovered um, uh, a type of molecule that did not induce the active conformation. They uh, stabilized the low affinity conformation. Um, and without just, and then we, uh, um, a, uh, a fellow, um, Albert Lin, discovered what the chemical basis for that was, and um, and we started a company. And Albert could have become an assistant professor somewhere, or you know, become like the first scientist at the company. And every time I asked him that question and gave him the choice, he said, "I want to do the company." Um, and you know, it's, it's now very successful. And one of the, one of the, um, drugs is developing actually is a follow on for, um, for intibio for, uh, ulcerative colitis. The um, alpha and then, four beta seven directed. Yeah, for alpha um, four beta seven. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But now, um, let's back up. So it's interesting that, you know, you kind of went from a mindset of, you know, trying to develop antagonists to inhibit just about everything. That's something pharmaceutical companies, you know, tend to do, tend to think about. Um, instead, you're going to think about partial agonist, like a completely different way of thinking about the problem. But it starts even further back than that, right? With uh, the the crystallography, the the views, the structural biology itself, um, like the actual like, um, and and it's a series of images. Uh, watching that protein go through its conformational states, yes, uh, go, going from A to B to C, uh, that gives you the extra level of insight to say, gee, maybe we could do <laughs> a partial agonist, right? No, no, sorry. We don't want to do the partial agonist. Oh. That was the problem. We, what we wanted to do was a, a pure antagonist. Oh, okay. I see. I see. But there's another, there's another spot to bind. Let's not say exactly how it works, but um, it's, a, it's a different way of binding. Okay. So this is the genesis for Morphic Therapeutic, another company that's gone public, I guess, just this year on the NASDAQ. So that one's off and running, uh, another one of your companies. The last thing I want to come to, Tim, is that, you know, this uh, big thing that's occupied a lot of your time in the last few years has been this Institute for Protein Innovation. So you're you're at this, you know, later stage of your career. You've been very successful both with your science and with companies. Uh, but now you're thinking about, well, what, uh, can I do something more for the whole field? What, what was your thinking around this IPI? 
Well, I got very excited about a new type of antibody um, that was displayed on yeast. And my colleague at MIT, Dane, Dane Wittrup, had um, um, pioneered um, this approach of displaying things on yeast and doing selections on them. And, and it's been established at um, a company, Atomab, and, you know, other companies. Um, but this is not, uh, not in an academic nonprofit setting. Um, and uh, it has huge potential beyond just making new therapeutics because uh, this is a new type of antibody compared to what I did with Cesar. Cesar's antibodies to uh, mouse or human were all by immunizing one species with proteins from another species. So they could only be directed to amino acid differences between proteins. But what I'm really interested in with IPI is making antibodies to the things that are the same, that are conserved from uh, one species to another. Those are the functionally important binding sites in proteins like integrins. Um, and um, there are some proteins that are entirely identical between mouse and human, um, particularly in the nervous system and uh, in developmental pathway uh, uh, molecules like the Wnts. And um, those have almost defied, defied recognition with antibodies to date and made, uh, particularly neurobiology, a very difficult field um, to work in. Um, and so um, we are uh, making these antibodies um, with um, really many types of applications. And another uh, thing we want to overcome is um, uh, the trade secrets um, that uh, companies keep and um, sometimes, you know, poor validation, uh, where it's up to the investigator to see whether the antibody works or not. Um, and um, so we're, when we um, distribute our antibodies to the public, um, we will uh, reveal their amino acid sequence. So um, they are entirely reproducible. Um, if somebody wants to publish a paper a million years from now using the same paper, using the same, the same uh, antibody, they will be able to get um, uh, the sequence of that antibody from a database and, and make it easily. This is open source biology. This is open source biology, and yeah, yeah. And, and it's and it's intended so that you know researchers don't have to like run the same set of failed experiments over and over again. You can actually learn from somebody else's uh, successes and failures, which, which yeah. you can't really do in a proprietary world. Right, right, or you know even improve them. Coming back quickly to what you said there about the um, the conserved regions and, and identical antibodies between mm -hmm. animal and human. I mean, if that's uh, the case, some of these antibodies, if you're able to then test them in animal models, shouldn't those animal models uh, of certain neuroscience conditions be more predictive of what we could expect in the in the human? Yes. So we can use the same antibody to do. Uh, uh, experiments in animals to see if, you know, diseases can be treated uh, in animal models and then uh, put those same antibodies into human clinical trials. So it's potentially a much faster way uh, to go from the laboratory to the bedside. How long has this been up and running, the IPI? Just two and a half years. 
Okay, so what, what do you think that this uh, ought to be able to accomplish in the next five? I think that we're going to have um, antibodies to complete sets of whole interacting um, proteins and extracellular signaling pathways. I call these uh, signalomes. So you will often have a receptor that binds a ligand, a co-receptor, and there are antagonists, and there's facilitators. And we will be making antibodies to all the components of one of those uh, uh, signalomes at once. So we can not only make the antibodies, but we can um, select for the ones that recognize functionally important determinants. And then we'll make those available to people um, in the biological community uh, to make new discoveries with. And then we hope that, you know, some sub subset of those will have interesting properties that will enable them to be developed into therapeutics. So maybe a few more antivios could come out of this uh, set of, of antibodies, uh, and, and there will be no royalties coming back to uh, Tim or the IPI? Yeah, there may be or there might not be. I mean, so people will be able to develop therapeutics, you know, with just the tool compounds we have. Um, but we also will, um, we, we think that we can do both through the open source and we can just, we can um, sell um, antibodies to the public um, with really great biological activities, um, open source, but then we can uh, use other antibodies for um, um, therapeutic development or at least because we'll be exploring so many new biological pathways uh, we could uh, partner with certain drug companies and tell them, hey, this is a really good um, target. You should go for that. And that's, that's very valuable for them to have that insight. Really, this could provide uh, a lot of data out there that's, that's kind of missing. You know, we, sort, we put a lot of emphasis on the, the underlying code, the genome. And, um, but there's a lot less... Uh, visibility into these these downstream, you know, um, the, the proteins, their structures, their conformational yeah. states. Uh, yes, and if yes, that exactly. if that kind of information were to become more widely available to you know everybody in academia or industrial scientists, I mean, gosh, that should be pretty useful, shouldn't it? It's hugely valuable. Um, so we, you know. We can touch the genes right now with nucleic acid probes, but we can't touch the products of those genes. And the products, the proteins, are you know what drugs are made of or what small molecule drugs are directed to. We need those proteins to develop drugs. And so our mission is to realize the promise of genomics by forging uh, protein tools and therapeutics uh, to bridge the gap between genomics and new. And we also want to strengthen protein science, which is so essential to drug development. My colleagues in the pharmaceutical and uh, bio uh, communities uh, in Cambridge and Boston tell me, really need better protein science. Just don't have enough. And I think there's distortions in the NIH funding system um, that um, sort of uh, uh, cooperate with the fact that if you're using molecular biology, 
is much more rapid to discoveries of proteins, which require much more time and effort. Um, and that is made most people in biomedical science uh, in academia focus away from onto DNA and RNA. But I think that um, protein sciences have are, are essential for you know successful uh, drug development in the. So that's one of our missions to strengthen this very important area. I agree. I think that's true, Tim. But it's also true that when we have really good biological underlying uh, hypothesis, like, say, PCSK9, <laughs> when you can see, okay, inhibiting this thing will, will, is likely to give you a big result, we can move very quickly with protein science and antibodies. Uh, yes, but, but getting that underlying uh, hypothesis right, um, <laughs> that's hard. There aren't that many targets that, are, that present themselves quite like that. Um, and, and this is something where, you know, there, you've got some work um, that, that could, uh, could bear fruit for a lot of people here. So very interesting and important uh, set of, of questions and answers uh, in front of you, Tim. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Long Run. My pleasure, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.